Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast. Let the healing begin. Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Sovendahl with Match on a Fire, Medicine and More podcast, and I'm sitting next to my brilliant wife, Stephanie Sovendahl. Why, thank you. Hello. You're welcome, Steph. Someone had asked us what our backgrounds were from the previous podcast. So I'm an ER doctor and I work in EMS and Steph's a firefighter, critical care paramedic. We hope you are doing well with COVID. We had to take a little break in the podcast just because we lost childcare for a little bit with the COVID. And we're pretty sick of talking about COVID or I am. And so Steph came up with a new topic for the week, which I'm excited about. All right. Yes, we are going to get off the COVID talk for a bit. And so the other kind of thing that has been really popping up in the EMS world, at least in the neighboring agencies, is this pre-hospital ultrasound. Fuss, fuss. I don't know what the acronym for that is, but pre-hospital ultrasound. I know of a local agency um, that is actually putting this into practice. And then once again, a lot of other agencies I've heard um, chatter around making the purchase of these probes. And so we're going to talk about it today. We're going to see, is this a one size fits all kind of thing or does it not make sense for every single agency? So you may have heard of the acronym POCUS, which stands for point of care ultrasound. And so you, you may have heard that. That's generally what the hospital um, refers to that as. And then we kind of have this pre-hospital ultrasound piece. So we're going to say, is this, uh, or talk about, is this best practice or just hocus pocus? Nice title, Steph. Thanks. Catchy. Mm -hmm. So I thought we'd review just briefly ultrasound. And the easiest way for me to think about ultrasound is just like sonar in a submarine. So the submarine is underwater. It can't see where it's going. So it shoots off a sound wave. The sound wave bounces off the wall of the ocean floor or other submarines. And then it bounces back. Using the Doppler effect, it can determine the distance and speed at which the other object is traveling. And it can essentially see, same way as bats can see. So when we think about what range that is in humans hear between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz elephants can hear a little bit lower than that they can go down to like 20 hertz humans can't hear that low and then bats can go way high they can go to ultrasound levels which is like 20,000 hertz and above so that's the level of which our ultrasound probes are working and why does that matter well depending on the frequency that depend that determines what our resolution and depth is so a low frequency ultrasound probe has low resolution but longer depth and a high frequency ultrasound probe has high resolution and shorter depth. So you can just remember that the frequency kind of attaches itself to the resolution. So when you're trying to remember these things, low frequency gives you low resolution, high frequency gives you high resolution, and then the depth is the opposite. You gotta give up depth for resolution. In the ER, when you come in, you'll notice that the ultrasound machine has multiple probes on it. And that's the reason because we're gonna grab the probe that's gonna give us what we want, either more penetration or more resolution. The main question that I think about when we want to roll something out is, is this valuable? Is this just a, a fun thing to have or is it truly valuable? Yeah. And call me old school, but I get a little apprehensive anytime some new gadget or gizmo comes out. You know, I see a lot of people think, oh, hey, it's got to be the best practice because it's newer and that means it's better. But I like to kind of step back and think of a few things before I just jump on the bandwagon. I think actually I've learned a lot of that from Shannon. Uh, newer's not always better. So that's because uh, I'm old. <laughs> I've convinced her that thoroughly. <laughs> Unless it's a new wife. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then newer might be better for you. But 
Other than that, in the pre-hospital EMS setting, we'll get back to it here. I do, I like to ask some questions. So some of the questions that come to my head and that I'm probably going to be asking as we talk about these different uh, indications for use with pre-hospital ultrasound is, is this going to change our care in the pre-hospital setting? So is this going to change what we need to do for our patients? Is this going to change care upon arrival in the ED? Also, will this, um, will we have time to perform this in our districts? And this is, once again, not going to be a one size fits all. You've got to look at your district. If you're five minutes from a hospital, is it really practical that we're going to be able to use this device and tool before we arrive in the ED? If you're an hour out, hey, maybe, and maybe that will change your practice then. Oh, is this going to distract from more valuable exams or interventions, right? Are we going to start getting distracted by the nice shiny object in the corner and not put our hands on our patient? Are we going to forget to do, do an a, intervention? Do a fast exam and not a tourniquet? Yeah, do a fast <laughs> or never palp a belly. Yeah. Is this going to distract from those valuable exams? And then lastly, do we have other tools to achieve this level of care? So do we already have something that can do this assessment for us? Once again, if that's a physical assessment or end title or something else. So those are questions we're going to ask. So getting back to, is this valuable for EMS? Where do we go? We go to literature and we go back and see if people have done studies on this and see what they've come up with. And it's been around for a while, back in 2010. Jorgensen, who is probably from my homeland of Denmark, he did a study in the European Journal of Emergency Medicine. And in that study, they were unable to conclude that pre-hospital ultrasound improved treatment, specifically in trauma. And then five years later, again in Europe, and I'm always annoyed they like, seem like they're ahead of us in this stuff. They were doing these they studies before we're doing them. But in another uh, study in Europe, in the journal Injury, they found moderate evidence to support the use of pre-hospital ultrasound in physician-staffed pre-hospital systems. So in Europe, a lot of the EMS agencies do have critical care docs, anesthesiologists, or emergency providers on their ambulances and helicopters. In 2015, a Cochrane review, which takes into account kind of all the studies that you know look at this or mention ultrasound, and that study, uh, which looked at a large number of you know patients, they said at best abdominal ultrasound has no negative impact on mortality or morbidity. They did add that it might reduce ordered CT scans, which is good because mm-hmm. uh, we like to avoid that if possible, but it's not like an overwhelming positive review there. And there was also a recent study in resuscitation and they found that pre-hospital ultrasound may improve patient management with respect to diagnosis, treatment, and hospital referral, but they were unable to tell if the pre-hospital ultrasound improved patient outcomes. And really my focus of everything we do is do we improve patient outcomes? We do not care about if we get to do a procedure, if we get a patient to the ER, if they do not go home. So we want to take that patient from the moment of impact to home. And to do that, we want to make sure that we're every step of the way, we're right on and we're doing what we should be doing. And what this study showed was that it didn't change the outcome. And especially, I mean, when you're going to put the financial costs and the training costs into something, you want to know that, hey, this is because it's going to provide better outcomes, right? Yeah. And that brings us really to the next point is, can we do this with the training? Meaning can non-radiologists, so ER docs included, paramedics included, can we be trained to do the skills that these radiologists or, or ultrasound techs are doing to get adequate results? And I noticed just recently in a, the Air Medical Journal, I was reading the November, December issue, and there was a study in there where they took paramedics and gave them a two-day course in ultrasound. And after that two-day course, 100% of those paramedics passed the practical exam. 76% passed the written. So the written was a little bit less, but the practical piece of it, they, they got down, they were able to do. So you're saying there's a chance? 
I'm saying there's a chance. It's not so much here or here. It's more, more right mm-hmm. here. So the way I always approach things is I try to simplify them and I try to have these simple avenues in my head and pillars of education. Remember my pillars of being great in medicine. You got to have book smarts. You got to be clinically smart with you know, the diagnosis. You had to have technical skill is the second pillar. You got to be able to do your procedure. And then the third is scene control. And really that framework of trying to put things into simple mnemonics, I, I like. And when I have a sick patient, I always focus on, you know, what do I need to do next for my ABCs, right? And so if I'm confused with the patient, I fall back on my airway and then I fall back on breathing. Then I fall back on circulation, disability. Is there anything else when I expose the patient? So let's look at ultrasound like that. Let's look at ultrasound, how it applies to our ABCs. You know, when we were prepping for this lecture, we really went and we looked at, hey, what are all the indications that people are arguing for in favor of pre-hospital ultrasound? And let's take a look at those indications, all of them that we can find out there and really say, hey, in our experience, do we feel like this is going to be a benefit uh, pre-hospitally or can it wait? Once again, as we go through and talk about this stuff, this is based on our experience and one size does not fit all with this. You've got to look at your transport times. You've got to look at your cost um, financially, training, all of that. You have to look at your hospital capability. So there's a lot in play here. We're going to just, once again, kind of kind of toss these ideas around. So first one, we got endotracheal tube confirmation. So ETT confirmation. I'm going to just quickly talk through my experience with this and whether or not I think it's a benefit. So in my experience, I feel like there's a lot of other tools that have led to, to my coworkers and myself being successful with this without pre-hospital ultrasound. However, it may be a good extra tool if these other Uh, modalities fail. So the first thing that we do that uh, helps me know my tube is good is your visualization, right? You visualize the cuff going through those cords. That's my first one. My next one is, hey, is there mist in that tube, right? As As I back now my vision out, I can see if there's mist in the tube. Then I go and I listen over the belly. Then I listen to lung sounds. Then we put Entitle on, right? So all of these are kind of one point for each one kind of leads me to feel confident with that tube. If any of those fail, I do have that end title. So if I am not, if it's a really anterior innovation and I'm not sure, I think I saw it go to the base of the cords, but I couldn't see exactly that end title and these other things, the misting, the lung sounds are all going to help me feel confident with that end title that um, has really been the gold standard for our system and has really f- has really worked well, right? Unless your batteries on your monitor die, it's a, it's a really great tool. And I've, I've felt very confident with those tools. So I'll be a little devil's advocate here in that when I think about something as important as placing an endotracheal tube, and when we do it in the emergency department with RSI, if you do RSI out there, I always say that when you do that technique, you're going to kill the patient and then you're going to save them. So it's on you, meaning that if you don't get success, you're the reason that the patient died. And so to confirm that the tube is in the correct place, I want every means available. And absolutely, Steph just went through all the ones that I do, and I do all of them for every tube that I place, meaning I watch the tube go through the cords. I'm very confident when I was training, if an attending was nervous standing over your shoulder and wondering if you got this tube, I'd be like, you guys can do whatever you want. I, I saw it go through the cords. It's, mm-hmm. it's good, right? I'm standing there holding it. But then I want to confirm it with misting on the tube, bilateral breast sounds, no sounds over the abdomen. And then I do capno. But some of the limitations of that are the first one is 
with Capno, I don't necessarily know if I went right main stem or not. Like I don't know if it's in the correct spot, right? I want it sitting just above the crina. And so if I have an ultrasound, I might be able to better determine the depth of my tube and if it's in you know, the perfect spot. I can also confirm the actual lung moving on both sides with ultrasound fairly quickly. So if I'm in a helicopter or if I'm in an ambulance and I can't listen to breath sounds, I'm just feeling for chest rise. This is just another way that I could determine that. And so again, I wouldn't jump on the bandwagon that I need an ultrasound. But if you tell me that it's going to be effective for another means to determine that the patient did not have a missed tube, you know, I am all for that. Like, especially as a medical director who's constantly, you know, looking at the numbers for missed tubes and trying to make that better. You know, if, if we can do this, I think it would be great. I would like to see more experience with it. In uh, your experience too, as a medical director, do you feel like when we're looking at missed tubes, those aren't unrecognized missed tubes, correct? Those are, I just didn't get it on my first attempt. It's a mix. So we definitely see unrecognized missed tubes, which is the worst. And, and what, that, that does that happen. Number? Is, that like um, a, is that a large number? No, it's not a large number, but it's a deadly number. Yeah. So it's very serious. Obviously, yeah. if we have a missed tube and, and it's something that we see every year, we see missed tubes that are undiagnosed missed mm-hmm. tubes, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we, we count when we're doing like our gamut numbers and we say, I took a look, I didn't get the tube in. That was a missed tube on our numbers. But we also are just concerned about is the tube in the right location and is something else amiss? And obviously what you just alluded to, if it's, if it's unrecognized, that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. Cause a lot of times when we look pre-hospitally at um, our innovation numbers, we're just looking at failed attempts, not necessarily unrecognized missed tubes, which is, I think what this is speaking to, to help you find those unrecognized ones. I think otherwise people know, Hey, I'm in the belly fairly quickly. So once well, you'll, again, you'll know the difference from that, here, from so. a, from a QI committee, meaning that a missed tube, meaning I looked, I didn't get the tube on that attempt. So I tried again and I got the tube. That's a number that gets discussed, discussed in the QA committee, QI committee, a tube that is unrecognized. That's the whole new level. You know, that's a, a, a different guideline failure, so to speak, where you would have a meeting with the paramedic and there'd probably be some action taken, meaning we're going to have to do some education and make sure that we're not going to miss this again. Yeah. All right. Next indication, we're sticking with the airway and breathing topics now. The next indication that we found was causes of dyspnea. And we could probably throw some COVID in here too. So we'll- But we won't. We don't want to. You're right. Pre-hospital ultrasound, is it beneficial for differentiating causes of dyspnea? Meaning, is this going to help us determine, you know, pulmonary edema versus COPD versus a PE? And do we not have the tools right now to, to decipher those? So that, this is a pretty common one, right? Like you have a patient, you're like, is this COPD exacerbation or is this CHF? Yeah. You and know. we have different, you know, of course, our treatment plan is going to be different based on which one it is. So it is a big deal. You know, I think right now I'm going to once again, just go with, hey, do we have tools for this currently? And I think we do. Are they the best? You know, I don't know. And we'll have Shannon speak to some of that too. But the current tools that I I use in my practice are, first of all, lung sounds, right? Let's not stop touching our patients. Let's not stop talking to our patients and examining them and doing good physical exams. So lung sounds is absolutely going to tell you, is this edema versus COPD versus PE? Because they should sound a little bit different. However, we know that not everyone is really easy to listen to lung sounds on, right? We have really large patients. We have patients that can't take a deep breath. We have 
or in environments that are really noisy. So for all those reasons, long sounds sometimes are unachievable. So then for me in my practice, what I would fall back on is once again, end title. I mean, end title has been a game changer for us pre-hospital. We use it a ton and it really helps out. So I'm going to go to my capnogram, right? If I can't hear lung sounds and my patient's dyspneic, I'm going to look at my capnogram. Does it have nice clean edges? Is it shark fin? You know, what does that look like? And that's going to help me determine is this bronchospasm or is this edema, fluid, et cetera. Steph loves, um, the capnogram. She does. She, she loves it. And she's not paid by them this, every day. She, this, she's capnogram. not paid by them. This is just her love of diagnostic I think, work. I think yeah. that tool is fantastic. <laughs> I like touching my patients and I also like tools that really are game changers. So game changers. I do a little bit of this in the ER. I don't look with the ultrasound for edema versus COPD, but I would like to, I mean, I would like to train on that because I do think that that would be a really quick utility at bedside to determine. I do use it in PE at times because if I'm confused on what the diagnosis is, I can take that ultrasound probe fairly quickly and put it on the heart and look at the right heart size. And if I see a really dilated right heart, that will give me an indication that my pulmonary pressures are up, Mm -hmm. which will again give me an indication that I have a pulmonary embolus, but it doesn't give me the answer yet. The only way I could really use that is say I I was at that point and then the patient arrested if I saw that really dilated heart and they arrested at the moment, I can't get a CT scan. I might go right to thrombolytics mm-hmm. uh, because I'm su- suspicious of a PE. But all of this stuff that we're looking at here, you know, from my practice in the ER as well, I don't do all of these things, which doing this talk has made me want to do some of these other things yeah. like COPD versus edema. Once again, I know we don't want to spend a lot of time with COVID, but the one indication I've heard of local agencies doing, once again, I know of one large local agency that's currently practicing this, is looking for COVID-type lungs. And they're using it currently right now to look at that. So just kind of interesting, should we you know, be focusing on training to look at COVID-type lungs or should we do more just practical you know, proning of the patients and high-flow oxygen for them? You know, that brings up a good point because the treatment for COVID is oxygen mm-hmm. and potentially oxygen proning. And proning um, right? <laughs> as opposed to doing a nebulized wheeze, which we talked mm-hmm. about in the last lectures, but we won't get into that. I do want to point out that when we're talking about making these determinations, we're not talking about one quick placement of the ultrasound. So the things that look at, at chest pathology, you know, there's something called the LCI and there's a triple scan and what they look at, they essentially look at the same things. They're looking at a lung ultrasound, so various windows, multiple windows of the lung fields to see if we see fluid or consolidation. And then you look at the heart to see if it's dilated or if it's constricted or what it's kind of looking like with the valves. And then you look at the measurement of the inferior vena cava and the compressibility of the inferior vena cava. And that gives you an idea of, you know, is this edema versus COPD versus, you know, other diagnosis. So do you think if we had this pre-hospitally and we had longer transport times, is this going to change? We say, you know, on appearance, is this going to change what you guys do in the ER? I mean, I think it would change potentially what we both do, what you do in the field and in the ER, right? Because if you can determine that this is edema versus COPD or it's COPD, right? That's a totally different treatment avenue. So I do think that that would be helpful. It, It does seem when I'm reading this and the different views, it seems like it would take a long time, but they have studies out there that show that it doesn't prolong time in the study. Um, yeah. You know, I would like to see, obviously, well, in my, well trained. In, yeah, in my, uh, in my world with my agencies, what it would, what it would do. And the patient sits still and you don't go down a bumpy road. No. <laughs> and being in Colorado, I actually read a study that you can do ultrasound to help you determine HAPE as well, high altitude pulmonary edema. So that's interesting because if you're in the Himalayas on an expedition and you have the butterfly with you, you mm-hmm. could actually look. But once again, are the, are, are the resources we currently have not doing its job? 
right? So the long sound plus our capnograms, is that not providing us enough information to come up with a treatment plan? I think most of the time it probably does, but there's going to be times, right, that they're unreliable or unavailable. All right. So next up, uh, the next indication that we saw out there was pneumo or needle thoracostomies. The argument in favor of pre-hospital ultrasound was that we could prevent unnecessary field needle thoracostomies by doing pre-hospital ultrasound. So looking at that chest, hey, is this really a pneumo or a tension pneumo? And therefore being more accurate with our needle thoracostomies. Once again, with my experience in this, I think lung sounds have been fairly reliable as far as, hey, I hear air movement on one side and I don't hear, hear air movement on the other. Also tachypnea, low oxygen sats, and then low blood pressures. Those, at least for our current protocol, are what we need to have in place in order to decompress. So if all of those are in place and we decompress, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're missing or if we're over decompressing people. And I what think, is your experience? I think there's, you know, as you said, there's two pieces here. The first is making the diagnosis. So do they have a pneumo or do they have a tension pneumo? And then the second is, I'm going to place a needle now. And did I place the needle right? Um, is it in the right mm -hmm. location? I can use the ultrasound for that. And did it work? So I can see if I need to put another needle in. So it helps with all of those aspects of it. I think that, you know, honestly speaking, you know, I think that you have more confidence in your physical exam than I have in mine. And that's probably because you don't have as many tools at your disposal. So you have to rely on your physical exam more than I do in the ER. Meaning, you know, we could potentially get lazy in the ER because I'm like, ah, I can't really hear. Let me just shoot an x-ray real quick or let me grab my ultrasound. And so I have seen that mean that there's really good people at diagnostics with their, with their skill set that they have, their stethoscope and, and the, the instruments that they have. I don't feel that confident personally because I'm just like, ah, man, I got burned on that one. And the ultrasound just, you know, the, the chest x-ray shoved it in my face. So, well, let me say, I don't, I don't mean to come across overconfident as well. I'm just, you know, no, no, I get it. I, I, I'm giving you I'm giving you a no, compliment totally. here, honestly. <laughs> but like, I am. I also um, want to say I've definitely missed stuff and I'm not 100% on this. I'm sure I've over decompressed at times. So, And I, I think that, you know, you had asked me the question if um, we see it change in the ER. I can't always say because if you put a needle in in the field and you come into the ER and I'm like, they don't have a pneumo. Well, maybe you relieve the pneumo, you know. I will say that I pretty much teach in general that if you're going to place a needle you should place more than one needle. One needle is not enough because we know from studies that we only about 25% of those are in the correct position or make that into the plural space. And so if you had an ultrasound to confirm that, that would be nice because you could just be like, did my procedure work or work. not? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can't always hear that for sure. All right. Next up gastric tube placement. Now I have to say, I don't have experience in this and the systems I've worked in pre hospitally we do not place gastric tubes. It's not that we can't, we just, we don't, historically, we haven't done that. So I'm gonna have Shannon kind of speak to this one, maybe just quickly here. We put it in the breathing um, section, which might seem weird initially, but you know, the, the indication in a field for putting a gastric tube, a big one is, is that you're bagging a patient or positive pressure ventilation, and then they start to distend and that puts pressure on their diaphragm, which lets them not kind of breathe fully. So you can put a gastric tube after an intubation or the positive pressure to relieve that pressure. But, you know, in Colorado, we, it is in the skill set of a paramedic to do this, but we don't do it in our system. So, you know, you can confirm what, what tube, the same way with the ET tube, is it in the esophagus or is it in the trachea? Sure. All right. Moving into our circulation piece, ABCs, we're on to C, circulation. Biggest one, I think, of the podcast that, you know, I really think is quite fascinating. And that would be for cardiac arrest. So a couple of subgroups here in this cardiac arrest group. One of the things 
that people are really pushing for pre-hospital ultrasound with is for cardiac wall motion with a systole, right? So you're on that cardiac arrest, you have persistent asystole, you're getting ready to terminate resuscitation, you call it doc, whatever your procedures are for that. And this would be one extra tool that you can use to say, man, is there any reason we should continue with resuscitative efforts? If there, you know, if you place that probe and there is some wall motion, gosh, man, it's probably going to have you continue those resuscitation. And who knows? I don't have a number at how this changes outcome, at least hospital discharge outcomes, but it will probably make you feel more confident about sleeping at night. Like, hey, did I do everything? Share what's your experience with it. I think that, you know, I use ultrasound all the time in cardiac arrest in the emergency department to get a look at the heart and see if there's any movement, see if this is futile. And really talking about the next point will tie in to what I'm going to say here. But we know if the person is not having much cardiac activity and it's been 10 minutes, that like this is a futile resuscitation at this point. These people do not survive. So, you know, depending on how long you've thought that you've seen asystole on your screen or the transport when you've told me that there's asystole and we confirm it with no wall motion, you know, that can help us and the resuscitation. All right. So the next kind of subcategory for this then is true PEA versus pseudo PEA. And, you know, truthfully, I hadn't thought much about this before. I looked and saw, you know, an organized rhythm on the monitor. I felt for a pulse, no pulse. I called it PEA. I didn't really think much about, hey, could this actually not be true PEA? It's a pseudo PEA, meaning is there electrical activity and some cardiac output, but just not enough for me to feel it. Right. And so this was really something new for me to think about. And I do think this is kind of valuable. Hey, that heart's actually moving in there and providing a little bit of output. I wouldn't be able to feel on my physical exam. And definitely the studies support that if they have pseudo PEA, meaning their heart is still moving, they have increased survival compared to the people who have true PEA, meaning no heart movement with uh, PEA. And so I think that that is definitely helpful as well. And I would use that in the emergency department. It's funny the word pseudo because we have pseudo seizures, pseudo PEA. I have a friend uh, from residency and he tries to put medical words together that aren't real words, but he uses like all the Latin stuff. So he has a word called pseudo mucosthesia. So pseudo mucosthesia is when you feel like you have like snot on your a nose, bugger. but you don't. Yeah. So that's mm. pseudo mucosthesia, like feeling. See, look it's what you can do with these words. It's amazing. This is what we did in residency. We spent a lot of time bored in the cafeteria. My goodness. All right. And then the last one under this is diagnosis of tamponade or hypovolemia. Once again, I think this almost falls into the kind of that pseudo PA in the sense of like the hypovolemia. Can we look for just decreased cardiac output? Is that going to change our treatment? If we find a tamponade on exam, is that going to change our treatment, right? Is cardiac alternans or muffled heart sounds, are any of those not reliable enough? And will, you know, we can't treat a tamponade pre-hospitally, but maybe it is going to change whether we transport or not or, or our quickness at which we transport. So just some other interesting things to, to think about with this tool for all things kind of cardiac rest. Yeah. I think that um, this section, the cardiac arrest section is, I utilize the ultrasound on almost every cardiac arrest I do. And I think it is nice really just to, to have that, that confirmation, right? Yeah. It's kind of like when before I used ultrasound, I, I would get a potassium back of nine in a cardiac arrest patient, right? And if I have a potassium back of nine, normal potassium four, I, I can stop this resuscitation. The cells have lysed, the resuscitation is over. And so it gives me that quick look to say, hey, I don't need to keep on trying here. That extra leg to stand on, right? All right, you guys. So next, IV for pre-hospital ultrasound. This one, the argument for 
is that in difficult vascular access, this is going to help us to achieve our IVs. I think that once again, there are very challenging patients as far as um, establishing IVs. We've got many places we can look, but often we can't utilize any of them. In once again, in our agencies and in our practice, IOs have kind of taken place of difficult vascular access. So I actually have noted now that we can do IOs on conscious patients that my EJs access has gone down significantly. So I think IOs have really come in and helped with this, especially now that we can do it on conscious patients. Uh, Do you remember when you asked me if you could do an EJ in the ER (laughs) before we were dating? A long time ago. (laughs) I had a patient that uh, I couldn't get access on and I thought maybe once she was in the ER, I was going to be able to get some EJs, but (laughs) we use, you let me do it. Yeah, I did. Um, We, use ultrasound all the time in the ER for access, obviously, because we need a line and we don't want to put IOs in everybody. Um, Instead of a humeral head, IO. Well, I mean, I'm I talking about a patient me. that's just in the ER that needs like a blood test done. They don't need an IO. They need to get some blood drawn okay. to see if their troponin's positive. So, you know, we use it all the time for that, obviously for central lines. We can use it also, though, to determine if you're in the right spot with your IO. So you can use the ultrasound mm-hmm. to see if your IO is if you're questioning whether that IO is working, and I did it very recently, I had a humeral head IO that I placed in a patient that was near arrest from anaphylaxis. The IO was initially working and then it stopped working. And I took the ultrasound probe and, and looked to see where the needle was sitting and then if, see if there was extravasation, see if there was fluid around it because it was a big shoulder. And so you couldn't tell by feeling. What so did it show you? It showed me that it was out. So we pulled it and put a new one in. Hmm. Yep. And you couldn't tell, you couldn't necessarily tell that without ultrasound. Yeah, they were too big. The patient was too big. Couldn't see it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I think that IO obviously is a game changer, especially now that you don't have to have like 72 missed IV attempts before you go to an IO. We can, in our protocols at least, go straight to an IO and it doesn't matter if they're conscious or unconscious anymore. We do reserve it for the sicker patients. So you're right. We're not for a typical blood draw. We're not going for an IO. Those humeral heads tend to be much less painful for patients. And I don't want one. I'm not letting anyone demo that on me. I know a few (laughs) crazy, crazy people. So next we'll talk about shock. And I just found this one interesting because we're always trying to determine, you know, where a person is in shock. And obviously the first big categorization of shock is, is traumatic shock or non-traumatic shock. And so traumatic shock is kind of easy and we use ultrasound a lot in that. This is, that's a fast exam, right? So for a focused assessment with sonography and trauma, that's our straight fast exam that we do when a trauma patient comes in. We do that on, on almost all patients. So you could certainly do that in the pre-hospital setting to determine if they had blood in their belly. You can also do an EFAST, which is an you know, extended fast exam where you also include a pneumothorax evaluation in the trauma patient. But really what I found interesting about the shock is the non-traumatic shock. And there's a couple protocols out there. One of the docs who devised this is, his last name is Lichtenstein. So that's a cool last name. Mm, Um, And he devised the the FALS protocol. The FALS protocol is the fluid administration limited by lung sonography. And really what they're doing is they're doing a step-rise approach just to rule out different types of shock. So the way it starts is you first look for obstructive shock. You place the probe on the heart and you look and see do they have cardiac tamponade? Do you think that they have a pulmonary embolus due to right ventricular distension? And if you don't think that they have obstructive shock, 
then you move on and you say, okay, is this cardiogenic shock? And so you can look for cardiogenic shock by essentially seeing what their volume is and whether they have pulmonary edema on the ultrasound. And if they don't have those findings, then you move to hypovolemic shock. And that is really treated by giving them volume. And you can even look at their IVC and see how dilated that is. And then finally, if you get past that and they're still in shock, they're still hypotensive and they're not perfusing, then you move to this is likely distributive shock. This is likely septic shock. And I'm going to need to start pressers for that. So it's interesting that you can kind of use this mm -hmm. from a standpoint in the ER. And this can even be done in some places. They've looked at this pre-hospital, which seems like, a, you know, it's a lot. There's a lot of education to do this. But when I'm learning about this for the podcast, even it's, it's something that's cool that you can kind of go down the stepway pathway to see if they have one of these conditions. And you know, I've, you had mentioned that I'm a big fan of capnography. You know, I think capnography, and once again, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I think with capnography, with that tool, there are a lot of assessments you can do with that tool to help you figure out some of that stuff that you were just speaking to, right? So hypoperfusion, we can, we can look at with capnography. Right. So if they have a lack of perfusion, you're going to note that. The other thing is that I learned about not too long ago is that passive leg raise test to see if they're going to be volume responder or responders or pressor responders. And that's with capnography as well. So playing yeah. that devil's advocate, yeah, I mean, there are some the, of those tests that you can, can do with, without ultrasound. Yeah. Which type of shock though is capno not showing hypoperfusion? That's shock. That's what shock is, right? So traumatic shock, non-traumatic shock, obstructive shock, distributive shock. And so really what we're trying to do is which, which type of shock are we dealing with here? But do we need to necessarily know, I mean, septic shock versus traumatic shock, we should probably be able to pick up on For based sure. on our yeah, assessment that's pretty, right? that's pretty and the history of what's happening. I hope so. I hope and the so blood on the floor of the ambulance gives you the, versus the clue. Versus someone who's super hot yeah. and has uh, a known infection. I mean, I think that the devil's advocate there is that pre-hospitally you would say, have someone in non-traumatic shock. They're, they're shocky. So I'm going to give them fluid, yep. period. I give them fluid. And then if I give them fluid and they don't respond, I'm starting a presser, presser. and we're on our way to the hospital and you don't need that evaluation. And that, so. and that leg raise generally will help you determine too, hey, do I, are they volume responders or presser responders? So I think there are some avenues that we have currently without this pre-hospital ultrasound. Once again, I'm not knocking it, just saying, can we already do it? And is it going to distract from other things? All right. Next one. OB. This one, I don't know how much time I'm going to spend on it just because I don't know if it's totally a game changer for pre-hospital. So the argument here is that you could, with your ultrasound, determine if this is an ectopic pregnancy versus placenta previa versus placenta abruption. There's, once again, assessments we can do, and it's not going to necessarily change our treatment, right? If it's previa or abruptia, the blood color may, you know, if they're having some vaginal bleeding... If it's bright red versus dark red and how much is going to kind of determine our assessment and our treatment. And it's not going to change if it's one versus the other, at least in my head right now. You know, if they're bleeding significantly, we're going to do a treatment for them. So I don't know if differentiating is going to change. Yeah, I think, for, what do you like think? you said, with each of these, we have to say, does it change what we're going to do? Or is it just, hey, here's some information. Yeah. Is it going to um, change for the ER if I say, hey, it looks like previa versus abruption? Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not sure I have to think about that. And obviously I would want a very formal ultrasound as well to make some of those final diagnosis. And yeah. All right, moving on. Stroke. This one's pretty crazy. Once again, argument was for detection of CVAs. So they are 
saying there they um there's been an argument i don't know (laughs) um there's argument that you can do field transcranial ultrasound for stroke diagnosis sounds pretty advanced and pretty crazy once again is the cincinnati and the mend exam failing us as far as recognizing most of these patients in our treatment and Really pre-hospital treatment is recognition and, and rapid transport and transporting to the appropriate facility. So I don't know if it's going to change a lot of our treatment for them if we, you know, and I feel like it's a significant training process, just on a guessing. I have no idea, but. Well, I mean, the studies out there show that, you know, they can do it. Pre-hospital providers can do it. I think that the question is, is obviously we are so worried about time to needle for TPA in stroke, right? And so anything that delays that definitely causes a problem, which is why in our ER and many ERs, you know, EMS doesn't even go to a room, right? They kind of meet them in the hallway in the landing pad and then they go right to CT imaging. And really the only diagnosis or only way to make the diagnosis safe to give them TPA is you need a CT scan, right? So they need to get that CT scan fast. And then when they come back, they either initiating TPA or not. There are programs out there where they're initiating TPA in the field with mobile CT scanners, and that's way beyond you know our system. I think that the only, when I'm reading this, the only potential right now for me is that we do have discussions in, the, in our EMS community as to what is the destination. If we can determine that a patient has a large vessel occlusion, an LVO versus a smaller um, size vessel stroke, that could change their destination because they're likely going to need interarterial treatment as well as systemic TPA. So they get systemic TPA and then they get intraarterial TPA as well. And so, you know, in our city, for example, you would come to our hospital, we would make the diagnosis of stroke, give you TPA, and then we would fly you or send you in an ambulance to a facility that can do interarterial TPA because our facility doesn't do that. So, you know, I think this is obviously we're looking at all the indications. If you're in an EMS agency that wants to roll out focus, I think that you would decide on what specific, you know, diagnosis indications would be most important for you and see how that rolls out as you're starting to move forward. You would have to take a deep dive into your system. All right. Last one that we're going to talk about. So this is on, we did A, B, C, uh, C was O, B, D was stroke. E is exposure. So we're kind of going to fit this last one into exposure. So the last one that we found was fracture determination. And they're arguing that you can use pre-hospital ultrasound to identify long bone fractures. Once again, don't have a ton to say on this. I think long bone fractures sometimes are obvious, not always, but I don't think this is going to change our treatment, right? If they have pain, you're going to look at mechanism. You're going to mobilize appropriately, either that extremity or the entire patient based on mechanism once again and complaint. And you're going to give pain medication and manage their pain. So is this going to change pre-hospital treatment? No. Shannon, do you think if we call and say we have a positive tib-fib fracture based on our ultrasound, is that going to change anything on your end? They're still getting an x-ray. Right. (laughs) They're still getting an x-ray when they get in here. So So. not a lot of time on that. So to summarize everything, you know, here's some of the challenges that I think we may face in the pre-hospital arena with this biggest one being is cost, right? Can your agency afford a fancy tool like this? And can your agency afford the training required for this? That's the other really big one, right? Also, does your agency have five or 10 minute transport times? Does it make sense to introduce this tool in those short transports? Is it going to take away from something more, more necessary? 
Last few challenges are concerns about delaying time to definitive care, lack of evidence to support it, approval um, by EMS administration, and then buy-in by medical directors and ED staff. So these are all challenges you're going to face. Once again, the biggest ones, cost and training, and then those short transport times. Pros. What do we think some of the pros are? You know, I really like ultrasound. I do. I use it all the time in the emergency department. We're always finding new ways to use it. Um, you know, we didn't go over all the indications for ultrasound, but you know, I use it on eyes a lot. I Meaning, you can look at retinal detachment. You can see lens problem. You can see foreign body with your ultrasound probe. You can see the diameter of the optic nerve to tell intracranial pressure. And so, all these things are just going to be the wave of the future. And I think also the wave of the future with this stuff is the technology gets better and better. If you go Google ultrasound and POCUS, and you look at the different companies that are coming up with the software the and, and the, the probes, right? The software is becoming, you're not looking at a funny picture, meaning it, it looks like normal anatomy that everyone's comfortable with. And it can guide your, your treatments and your needles. And it makes it mm-hmm. like you're landing a jet plane on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. You know, it guides you in so well that I think the more that we can get used to using it, the better off we'll be. I definitely want to have a reason to do it. I want there to be no harm. So that's kind of my overall thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's exciting. I think, you know, as much as I've played devil's advocate here, I I think it's exciting. Anytime you have a new tool, anytime you can have more training and possibly expand your scope and hopefully benefit outcomes. Of course, all of that's exciting that it's refreshing to have new stuff and new training and and new options for your patients. So I think it's exciting overall. I don't know if every agency would benefit from this. Once again, if you're five minutes from the hospital and you know you would, just wouldn't be able to have time to do it or it might prolong other things, maybe not. But I think that too, looking at the future, like some of the stuff that's out there, I read a, a thing about the clot bust study and they were basically using ultrasound to bust a clot for a stroke, right? And so it's funny because you think the ultrasound is safe. And I know that when you were having our babies, your OB doc was always limiting their ultrasound. And he was like, I just don't know. We think it's safe, but we never know in 10 years. And then I thought of that when I was reading this clot bust study, because they're basically using ultrasound waves to bust up a clot, which means it must do something to the baby in there. You know, using ultrasound for telemedicine would be great. So that might be useful if you're in the field, you telemedicine to the ER. They have ultrasounds that you wear on your finger. And so the ultrasound probe can like guide you when you're putting in your central line or your IV, you know, it's like that kind of hands on. Yeah. It's like, it's like cool stuff. And then obviously, you know, we use ultrasound for putting in ECMO um, and doing that real time and doing it when compressions are happening. So it can definitely change care that you get to do all this cool new stuff. So I think it's, it is the wave of the future and it'll get only better and better. So if any of you want to see really good images of ultrasound and learn a little bit more, there's a great website. It's called the POCUS Atlas Dot com. If you do slash trauma, you get some fast exams and great real-time images. So that's www.thepocusatlas.com. Check that out. And if you guys have any questions for us, certainly shoot us an email. Go to the website, drsovendahl.com. We'd love to hear from you. Steph, any last words? No, thanks. Keep up uh, all the good work out there. Thanks for uh, coming up with the topic, Steph. I enjoyed it. No COVID. Middle no COVID, COVID, no COVID, no COVID. All right, we'll see you guys later. Take care. I'm Shannon Sovendahl, and that's our show. Thanks for tuning in to Match on a Fire, Medicine, and More. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at shannon at matchonafire.com. And if you're enjoying the show, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks. We appreciate you listening.